This episode openly discusses themes and situations of sexual abuse, child abuse, and other scenarios that may be triggering and or not suitable for children of young ages. Please listen at your own discretion and refer to our show notes for resources. What we've got here is failure to communicate. From sunny Southern California, we bring you Meet Bridget, a podcast for building confident communication and female badassery. We spotlight women who have bridged the gaps in their lives by building strong relationships and speaking their teenage dreams into reality. When you feel disempowered, feel like I deserve to not feel this way. But trust me that there's a future version of you that doesn't feel that way, that knows your worth. Welcome back to Meet Bridget. I'm Asha Gabriel, and together with my co-host and best friend, Kashia Rosenberg, I run a confidence and communication coaching company for teen girls named Bridget. Not named Bridget. The company's named Bridget, (laughs) but we host it for all teen girls. When the pandemic hit, we transitioned away from some of our in-person events and we created this podcast, Meet Bridget. And the two different types of episodes that we do, we do interview episodes like we'll be doing today, where we focus on youth experiences, teen experiences of incredible women from all walks of life. And we also have another shorter type of episode called a bridge etymology, where we break down commonly used words to their root meanings. So again, this is an interview episode. Kashia is here with us on the recording, but I want to let you guys know she's here, but she is extremely pregnant. You may have noticed in our last, one of our last interview episodes, Kashia manned the mics on her own because I had just had a baby and she's about to have hers. So she is such a badass that literally she is kind of having early contractions, (laughs) Uh, meaning (laughs) it's like very slowly starting for her, but she felt this episode was you know, really important and, and going to be an inv- important, interesting conversation. So she's here. Hi, Keish. <laughs> Hi, everyone. I'll mostly be a silent contributor today. But like Asha said, we have a very special guest with us. And the story and context of this interview is so important that I wanted to be here, at least in solidarity. And hopefully I can participate as much as possible. So tell us about Katie, Asha. Yes. Today, we are very lucky to have Katie Wee here with us. She is a film and television actress uh, living in Los Angeles. Katie began dancing and acting when she was really young and later trained at the Kirov Academy of Ballet, Juilliard, and the Royal Ballet of London before dancing professionally. Katie and I met as members of Kappa Kappa Gamma while studying at UCLA. While at UCLA, she was the captain of the dance team, too. Katie has appeared on television shows such as Modern Family, Shrill, New Girl, Hawaii Five-0, and General Hospital, and has worked alongside Alec Baldwin, A.D. Bryant, Zoe Deschanel, Kelsey Grammer, Jimmy Burroughs, Mindy Kaling, and David Spade, to name a few. In 2017, Katie came forward to the police about sexual abuse by her ballet teacher that had happened to her as a child. Her abuser was arrested in 2018. And over three years later, he finally pled guilty to molestation charges for her and another victim. He's currently serving a 20-year prison sentence for his crimes. After a traumatizing experience with the criminal justice system, Katie is using her platform to increase awareness about victims' rights and the rampant abuse that takes place in the dance world. We are so lucky to have Katie here today. I also want to preface that as we dive into some of these more difficult topics, 
Katie has done a lot of work in therapy, has been sharing a lot of these topics and experiences prior to being on this interview. So this is a space that she is very comfortable in at this point, even though it's difficult to talk about. So thank you, Katie, for being here. We are so lucky to have you sharing your story, and we feel that this episode will be really important to our young listeners. Thank you both so much for having me. I really appreciate it. So, I mean, to start out, you know, I knew you in college, and this is something that clearly happened to you way prior to college, but for the longest time, you know, looking at you, talking with you, you'd have no idea that you had experienced sexual abuse as a child. I would have had no no idea. In your intro, we mentioned that in 2017, you came forward to the police. What was it about that time that that made you kind of approach all of this? Such a great question. So many things. I'll touch on one thing you said earlier about having no idea that that had happened to me. And what's really interesting about things like that is that when a child has an experience that they can't process or make meaning of, I was only 12 at the time I was first abused. They didn't really understand how to deal with it other than to just put it in a box and shove it way down. It creates shame. It creates this feeling that if people really knew what happened to us or who we were, or what we did, they wouldn't like us. And shame, as Brene Brown says, often creates perfectionism. The idea that if I make myself seem and look perfect and I'm just beyond reproach in any way possible that no one will see how flawed I really am. And sadly, as a child, I thought what happened to me was my fault. I now understand sexual abuse is never the victim's fault. And there was nothing bad or wrong about me that brought on the abuse. Those kinds of core beliefs made me very perfectionistic. And so, you know, I needed to get straight A's, go to UCLA, be the captain of the dance team. Any chance there was a, anytime there was a chance to do better, try to do better and everything all the time. And I was so exhausted. And by the time I got to be about 27, I was exhausted from my perfectionism, from a long road of just trying to make myself seem okay. And I wasn't okay. I started to have flashbacks of my abuse, which was really strange because I'd put it in like a locked basement part of myself for years and really tried to forget about it. And anytime I would think about it, just push it back down because I couldn't process it. I didn't have the emotional processing capability or awareness or information. So when it started to come up, I felt overwhelmed. I felt like, oh, whoa, completely incapacitated. I'd be driving and I'd have to pull over and just start crying. Crazy waves of emotion felt like they were just messing with my life. I had friends who were in therapy and I came from a household where no one was in therapy and it was sort of taboo, I guess. I think that's common for a lot of people. But I had friends who I really looked up to and admired and they were in therapy and they would talk to me about their therapy sessions and it just normalized the whole idea. And I kind of was able to see as someone who's always been interested in growth and evolution and improving that they were improving themselves in all of these important ways through therapy. And some of it involved self-reflection that 
they might not have gotten elsewhere. So the idea of going to therapy seemed like a good idea. I started going and thought I could really get through these feelings quickly. I was like, I'll have like three sessions and be done. I'm good at things. So, (laughs) and once I started talking about my abuse, my therapist said, and you know, at the time I had really almost told no one. I was, my friends didn't know, my family didn't know. So talking about it with her was a big deal. Um, And I'm so glad I did because I was like, I just want to stop having these flashbacks. And she would say, walk me through some of my thought processes as a child. And at one point she said, you do know this wasn't your fault, right? And I listed to her all the reasons why it was my fault, including things like, well, you know, I laughed at his joke and he was really nice to me and I was really nice to him back. And things that when it came out of my adult mouth, I was kind of like, wait, an, an adult was nice to me and I was nice back. Like it, it gave me a different lens to look at it through because my therapist gave me some really great information that when you have the trauma happen, you lock it in with the level of consciousness you have at the time. So the level of consciousness I had as a 12 year old was really limited where I thought it was my fault. The level of consciousness I had as a 27 year old was much more open. And I kind of said to my therapist, no, it was my fault. Let's not deal with that. I can't really go in there. I just want to stop the flashbacks. And she kind of kept making me go back to the thing. And eventually when I accepted that it wasn't my fault, I just burst into tears. I couldn't stop crying. And I think there's something a little bit evolutionarily protective of not processing things until you can. And Mm -hmm. there's research to support these things. And as a young person, I didn't, I couldn't have dealt with all these feelings. Even as a 27 year old, it really rocked my life to process that I was actually a victim of abuse and understand the ways my abuse had affected the rest of my life and to really process that and sit with that and allow all those different emotions to come up. So I started doing some pretty deep work around all of that, that I really, to this day, think is some of the most, if not the most important thing I've ever done. And I think it can be difficult to process our trauma. And a lot of times it's obviously this thing we all are like, eh, never mind. No, thank you. No, thank you. <laughs> like, I'll do my grocery list. I'll start a business. I'll, but I don't want to do that. But mm-hmm. it has yeah. been the most important thing for me. And once I got to a good place in therapy, my therapist told me that she needed to report my abuser to the authorities because she's a mandated reporter and legally needs to do that and asked if I would be part of the process. I thought about it for a while. I waffled. I didn't want to. Finally, I was like, okay, but only if I can be anonymous because I, still perfectionist Katie, needs to just keep moving on in my life. My career is going well. My life is going well. I'm on a good track. I don't want to derail it with having to tell my family and my friends, like all this stuff. I'll help report and then step away. Well, we try to do that, but reporting requires giving your name and your information and then getting interviewed and then a higher up detective interviewing you. And I kept saying, I'm just trying to give you this information and walk away. But the way our legal system works is that you can't just, they're like, we can't just go look into this guy. We need to arrest him. And once we arrest him, probably more victims will come forward. But you can't just kick us off and sound like I wanted to you have to be part of this process the reason I I felt a big difference is really getting back to your question 
a big difference between why I had to do this and why maybe I could not do this was my niece was born and she was just this amazing little ball of joy. (sighs) And, um, it made me realize I'm not a kid anymore. And like, that's a kid. (laughs) And as somebody who's an adult, I'm on the other side of the fence now of the people that need to watch out for kids, you know? And as you both understand very personally, once you're on the other side of the fence, you look at the world really differently. And I don't have children myself, but she was the first chance in my life where I started to feel kind of like I did. I really wanted to walk away from the whole process with the police. I didn't want to be involved, but I kept feeling like, well, there's little kids out there that are just going to walk into ballet classes, you know, and who are just going to live their life as carefree kids as they deserve to. And they need people like you to look out for them. And so trying to do what I could to make sure the abuse of more little girls wasn't on my hands became a big driving force. And um, ultimately is what I feel the best about at this point now that my abuser is in prison. This is so powerful, Katie. What your therapist said to you really resonated with me. Briefly before we jumped on the air, we talked a little bit about grooming. And I had an experience as a high schooler with a much older person that was a relationship. And I'm using quotations around relationship because he was an adult at the time. And I still think that like a 15, 16 year old is still a child. Like the way that you process thoughts, like your therapist said, is quite different. And I can, that completely resonates with me. Do you feel comfortable taking us back to just kind of setting the stage for us and kind of walking us through whatever you feel comfortable with in terms of, you know, your age, like what was happening in your life at that time and how this abuse began? And just as much as you're comfortable sharing. So our audience, especially some of our younger listeners, kind of get a sense for like, what this scenario looked like for you yeah, as it was happening? Absolutely. That's such a great question. I was a dancer and I had a private teacher. Uh, I was like on a pre-professional track from a really young age and I had a private teacher teaching me so that I could get better more quickly so that I could try to audition for ballet companies and dance professionally. This teacher started just say being really friendly to everyone in my life, you know, always oh, hello to my mom and hello to my dad and just the most gregarious, smiling, kind, everybody loves this guy type of person. My parents would invite him to a Thanksgiving at our house and he would come and bring his girlfriend and they trusted him completely. This is really common with pedophiles and they might seem super gregarious. And as a kid or a teenager, it might be someone who everyone else knows in your life as being a great person, just the best. And I've learned that this is pretty common behavior for pedophiles because they're trying to win the trust of the community, of the people around the child. And then the parents are a little bit less apprehensive to watch everything that they're doing with children. They're more trusting. So that was the type of person that was in my life. And then it just started, it treated me sort of like an equal, like an adult. And as a child, as a 12-year-old, all you want for me, all I wanted was to be treated like an adult. I was like, I'm not a kid. I'm very mature. I know stuff. Everyone's talking to me like I'm a kid and I'm not. So it felt nice that somebody spoke to me like an adult and like a friend. 
would make jokes with me that made me feel kind of cool. Like, oh, he's treating me like an adult. And these jokes are making us have a friendship. So now I have a friendship with an adult. And that felt really cool because all my other friends were 12. And now an adult who's a professional in the field that I want to be a professional in and dancing professionally currently doing what I want to do. He thinks I'm cool. It gave me the sense of status. And that's another potential grooming behavior sometimes is that you form a friendship. And then it becomes sort of like this little window where the relationship is different than any other relationship you have in your life. For example, you might have other parents, friends, relationships. You're like, oh, I know how other people's moms treat me. Other people's dads treat me. You might have uncle relationships, aunt relationships, teacher relationships. But then I had one that was just different than all the rest, not categorizable, which keeps the child confused. Because then when things happen, you don't know if that's in or outside of the boundary of how that's supposed to happen. If you're a 12-year-old and um, your uncle punched you, you would know pretty quickly that was not normal. You'd go tell your mom. If you're a 12-year-old and somebody who has already created a relationship with very blurry parameters, ask you something like, for example, like he would ask me things like, have you gotten your period? Inappropriate. Not okay. Something I understand as an adult. But as a child, I thought, oh, does he need to know for my training because it's affecting my body? That mm-hmm. you justify it all the different ways and asking me questions about, um, did I have a boyfriend? And things that I was like, oh, he's interested in my social life, I guess. That's nice of him. But those questions I now realize created this sort of like unspeakable territory because I couldn't then get in the car with my mom and be like, he asked me if I had my period. I just kept it to myself because I was like, she wouldn't get it because we have this relationship. And pedophiles, like a secret pack. Yes. Pedophiles often do this. They create some secret territory so that when there's more secret territory, it's like, well, I already accepted a certain amount of secrecy. So that was sort of how everything started. And then when friendship kind of turned into secrecy and inappropriate questions, it started turning into adjustments on my body and my ballet training just not feeling like they were necessary like he was just touching me and then it eventually escalated into sex and by that time I was so shocked and confused and had no idea what was going on I was basically like a spooked animal like a deer in the headlights and you know they say you have fight flight freeze or play dead those are the responses survival responses for me I was froze I just had no idea how to process all of it. And um, I think that by that time, how uncomfortable talking about, like my abuser benefited from how uncomfortable I was talking about sex in general. Because take yourself back to seventh grade. (laughs) The height of worrying about what other people think of you, worrying about your body, when you're changing for gym class, trying to make sure nobody sees your underwear, like the self-consciousness level is so high. And um, the one hour or something that was dedicated to sex ed in, I can't remember, fifth or sixth grade, it it didn't suffice to make anyone more comfortable talking about sex. It made us all just like, I guess how that's how some stuff works. I'm never going to talk about that. And then also, you know, um, culture among other girls. In seventh grade, I was already seeing other girls slut-shaming each other. So that combination of those factors 
made me feel like, how could I possibly tell anyone this incredibly embarrassing thing is happening to me? And I lived in a small town. At that point in my life, if you would have asked me what I cared about, it would have been if the most popular girl at school still thinks I'm cool. Or if I can get the pink van, I really want the pink van. <laughs> like you basically with children that have no conversations around them about sex and no communal support for understanding that these things can potentially happen to children and we want them to step forward. No talking about that in school or at home. It created this perfect storm where I thought I either blow up my entire life or just stay quiet about this, stay frozen until I can figure out how to get out of it. I think you make such a good point about how he established this like veil of secrecy. And I think it's really significant that you pointed out that this happens little bits at a time. And it starts with that initial conversation of like, okay, now we have these shared jokes. Now there's a shared ground. Even at the young age of 12, like you are somebody who's quite driven to do, you know, things that interested you, for example, dance, like you were working really hard toward a goal. And I think that, you know, you really may have targeted the fact that you were so, you were advanced in, in one way, but as an adult, he knew like, okay, this is how I sort of sink the claws in and start establishing this inappropriate relationship. Because like you said, it feels very cool. It feels very um, special for an adult to be having this conversation with you, which little by little, you start to kind of like your ears perk up and you're like, is this inappropriate? Is it not? But at that point, you've already sort of stepped over the line and it's not by any means the child's fault or your fault. It's that you're being led into that territory and that is a really confusing space. And that's like where the guilt and shame starts to set in. You know, you were... Very driven and mature in such a way that, you know, a lot of other kids who who have an idea or a deep passion about something like you did for dance, you know, they really feel misunderstood perhaps by other students of the same age or maybe not even misunderstood, just maybe like they understand or have these goals and desires that are quite different from their peers, not realizing that, you know, everyone sort of has like their own emotional thought process and things going for them. So I could really see this predator, for lack of a better word, I mean, that's what it is, you know, seeing that in you, recognizing that you are so mature in these ways, but really taking advantage of the the immaturity that exists as a 12-year-old, like because you're not fully developed and leading you into this territory, beginning with you know, the little questions, which seem fine, you know, the little like shared jokes that make you feel like, okay, an adult understands me and sees how, you know, differently I see the world. And then, you know, leads you into that territory where you step over the line, he asks you inappropriate questions. And by that point, you feel like a a sense of, of secrecy. And that's that guilt and shame setting in that you were talking about. Yeah, absolutely. And something that I've thought about a lot lately is that someone who works in the DA's office and prosecutes a lot of crimes with childhood sexual assault told me that you often see two types of victims. Children who it seems like no one cares about. They don't have a parent watching out for them. They don't have somebody checking in with them. 
and children who are very achievement driven and need to succeed and need their parents' approval or their community's approval or they need to win. And that's the kind of kid I was. Like, there was no way I was going to tell my parents that these expensive private ballet lessons they were paying for to train me so that I could achieve my dreams were really going like this because I thought it was my fault. Because another thing that abusers do is that they make you feel like you're co-conspirators. Like the two of you are in this secret relationship and you're both equally 50-50 in it, you know? And they're treating you like an adult and that's an honor in some way. What's very sad is that they're exploiting a child and it's pedophilia. And as a child, I didn't want to think of myself as a child. But looking back now, I see that there are reasons why children should not be in relationships with people like that because pedophiles are not necessarily the best representation of you know healthy older people as a 33 year old now I have friends who are married to people who are older or younger age differences are okay at different times in life and pedophiles will often tell young children or teenagers just an age difference thing it's not a big deal it is a big deal because your brain will change because of that relationship your personality will change because of that relationship because your brain isn't done growing. So that person and that relationship will affect the way you process life moving forward. Exactly. And I really want to drill in that one of the things that you're trying to emphasize here is it's very different being a 25-year-old plus meeting somebody who's older and wanting to establish you know, a relationship with them than it is being 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, you know, maybe even 18 years old with somebody who's much older. Because at that stage in life, scientifically, demographically, factually, your brain is not done growing. As Katie said, there's a level of plasticity that's there for you as a child moving into adulthood to be able to develop and soak in new experiences and learn. That's what that period of our lives, that's what that time is for. And so what she's saying is when an older person is taking advantage of that, what they're really doing is they're manipulating your thought process and your growth process. Because in some ways, regardless of how mature you feel as to 12, 13, 14, 15 year old, you're not done with childhood yet. I mean, that's why we go to pediatricians until you're 18 years old. No matter how mature you are, your body and your brain is not done growing. These scenarios also happen to young adults, you know, that 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 manipulation and creation of a secret special relationship. So this unusual thing doesn't seem so bad anymore. It also happens to adults. So I want to make that distinction for anyone that might be listening and maybe they're in a scenario like this and maybe they're over 18, but they're in a relationship that like feels a little bit different, you know, that, that I think we're also having a larger conversation here about consent and, you know, that there are some gray areas when it comes to consent and that it's okay to reach out and find help and to find resources to really understand, you know, whether you are in a consensual relationship. I would like to return to, you were talking about there's kind of those two different types of them. When I heard you break that down, that second category, which you said you're a part of, that really affected me because I think that 
extra implication there is that that type of victim not only is wanting to please, it has like high stakes with their family and friends. As an adult, that person is probably less likely to even reflect on it as an adult because I'm, you know, I'm looking at you. You're so poised and beautiful about just the way that you're laying this out and sharing it because it's so important. But I think about if I had been in a scenario like this, much less coming out to the police and sharing in newspapers and all these things, even if I had to share something like this with my mom today, it would be so incredibly hard for me because my adult brain would say, oh my gosh, my mom's going to blame herself putting me in dance class and she'll never forgive herself for that. So like, I don't want to put my mom through that, you know? So even as an adult, that is how, you know, deeply manipulative some of this selection of different types of victims is by pedophiles. They take into the account that an adult version of this child that they are abusing is also going to be handicapped later by ever exposing this story. Absolutely. The perfectionism prototype. And Asha, I've known you long enough to know if you hold yourself to a really high standard in so many areas. And I've been the same way my whole life. And I think for a long time, that meant to me keeping this completely closed off and never talking about it because it cannot enter the life and identity of me in the world. And as the universe would have it, I got sort of put in the situation where I had to be the one to move forward with this. And then I really ascribe to the belief that I know you both hold close to your heart that vulnerability is courage. And once I understood that, and I understood that might be the new version of winning for me in particular, of like, you know, I really don't like to be vulnerable. I really don't want to do this. But if I don't at this point, if I stay the same way, I won't know for the rest of my life if he's still abusing more girls. That's what brought me forward. Feeling like yeah. I had to be like less protective of myself and have a new goal instead of trying to look perfect, trying to be open and honest and let myself be a whole person with all my experience. I think the most one of the most like confusing parts of shame, you know, or things that have created shame in our lives is that behind that, the building blocks of what creates shame are really what we can connect with other people over, you know, like uncovering those layers of something that's deep is really that vulnerable vulnerability is what lets us connect with other people. And, you know, that's a big motivator for us to even be on the mics and, and sharing stories you know, some are like really light, happy stories of childhood and some are, you know, unexpected, complicated, you know, not so happy always versions of, of childhood experiences. And they're all, all important. I think that, you know, because we, we have older listeners, we have younger listeners. I think it would be helpful for us to go back to, you know, childhood Katie and kind of the steps of you, like what you thought at the time about this relationship and maybe taking some pauses to, you know, point out things that you see as an adult, but maybe you didn't see as a child as they were happening, you know, kind of as this relationship was building. So that if we have someone who is a younger listener or knows a younger listener that might be in a situation like this, that they can recognize just some red flags, things to look out for when to start asking questions. And if, now, knowing now what you know, 
what resources maybe you could have gone to as a child? I think we've done a good job of covering the beginning stages. And one thing I will say is that the most crazy thing in the world at the time to me at any time felt like telling someone. And now understanding my family, I knew then really deep down that my parents would have believed me, but I just couldn't handle, I didn't think that we could talk about these types of things. And now, given the fact that I've been so out with everything, we've had a lot of conversations about these deep areas and it's okay. So if you have parents that you feel love you and care for you and want the best for you and that trust you, come forward. Even if sometimes they don't trust you, telling a parent would have saved me a lot of years of processing all this on my own and really deeply suffering inside because of that. So if you can, if you feel safe to tell a parent, telling a parent is a really smart idea. Sometimes people will report to the authorities, tell the police, that's okay too. It can be a difficult process to move through the criminal justice system. Something I can talk more about later, but reporting to the police is never a bad idea. Or if there's another trusted adult in your life, you have an older sibling, if you have a counselor at school, a coach, somebody that you feel safe telling, it's good to be able to seek help because I just wish I'd started therapy earlier. I wish I had started to help myself earlier um, rather than struggle through those years where I was dealing with it on my own. When I was in the middle of all of the abuse happening, I got this point where life didn't feel real anymore. Life felt kind of like a daze and a dream and the days blurred together. And it's like getting stuck frozen in one moment or mood. And you just kind of smile and it's eighth grade graduation, do this. And oh, it's you act the way you think you're supposed to act in those moments. But I felt kind of frozen inside. And like, I didn't know kind of like how to make a move, like how to make any decision. And then I found myself acting out in strange ways. Like, you know, I I started unfortunately to have an eating disorder and I was limiting my food and really starving myself and exercising like crazy over-exercising. I would find myself just like laying on the floor or my bed, just like staring off into space, doing nothing, not really even aware if I was thinking anything. And that was really different from how I'd been before that. And at the time, I just felt like, what is going on? And sort of like, I can't do anything. Almost like I'm like in sludge, like my feet feel heavy, like I can't do anything. And those years were sort of just me trying to tune out a lot of what was really happening and live a life on the surface. Mm -hmm. And if anyone is out there in that moment of just like, that malaise, of like what happened to my life? What's going on? It feels like you have the least potential to act. It feels like you have the least energy to do anything about it. But remember that you don't have to live this life. Like your life is your choice. And there are things that happen to us at any given moment, but how you respond to them is completely up to you. And when you are truly, literally victimized, it can be very difficult to get up and do something about it, to when you feel disempowered, feel like I deserve to not feel this way. But trust me that there's a future version of you that doesn't feel that way, that knows your worth, protecting, saving, taking care of. And even if in that moment of while you're being abused, you can't stand up for yourself, know that future you would like it if you could and would be there for you if you could, if she could, he could, 
And I think that sometimes we have to find that strength that we don't have in those moments to extract ourselves from something that is harmful. And you have your intuition always. And we get so taught how to use our brains in school. We get really good at intellectualizing things, but go back to your gut. Sometimes you just get a clear yes or no, or a gut feeling. If your gut tells you something is off, that is your deeper source of wisdom that you're going to be using for the rest of your life. A lot of stuff you learned in school, you might forget by the time you're in your 30s, but that gut, you have to follow that. And something in me knew what was happening was wrong. And I essentially worked my butt off to get into um, the Kirov Academy, which is a pre-professional ballet boarding school in Washington, D.C. Very elite, very hard to get into, really strict. And I got in, and as soon as I got in, I went. And my abuse, unfortunately, kept continuing when I would come back for Christmas break, for Thanksgiving break, for summer. And then eventually, one day, I just said, I don't want to work with you anymore. And what that meant was, you know, I was 16. That was the end of trying to really have a professional career. Because at that point, I couldn't tell my parents I didn't want to work with him without telling them what was going on. They would have thought that was so strange. And my love for ballet had really shriveled up and died given everything that was happening with it. And I was okay with it. And I just said, I don't want to work with it anymore. And I didn't talk to him for years. And I buried it and tried to move on, went to college, had a really good experience in college, tried to kind of move on with a healthy, happy life. But, you know, like buried trauma has the tendency to do, it will well up until it needs to be dealt with. And um, that's what happened for me. But what, at this point, I look back on my relationship and understand it completely as something that was not my fault that I should not feel embarrassed or ashamed about that I was technically a victim and the meaning that I've made of all of this also at this point in my life is that while victim can be a label attributed to me it's not my identity it's one of many things a sister a daughter an actress a dog mom all of these things encompass my identity along with 50 others. So yeah. if something like this is happening to you or has happened to you, just please know that you don't have to be defined by it. It can be a thing that happened to you that you process and move through. What I'm in the absolute process of doing right here, being able to share is a really beautiful part of the healing journey. And I think that when you, you know, yes, you have been a victim among many other things, but in this process of sharing that experience and being open about it, you're also becoming an advocate, you know, and when you, when you pair past victim experience with, with advocacy, it becomes something really, really powerful. Mm-hmm. When you were describing some of the other ways that uh, what was going on with you was manifesting in your life, like the eating disorder, feeling like really, really tired and unable to kind of do anything at, at moments, I started thinking about as a parent, wanting to look out and make sure that like everything, you know, heaven forbid something like this is happening to one of your children or as a, even a friend, a teen friend, a preteen friend, looking at maybe some changes in a friend that if you were to notice, say I were to notice that my friend was maybe suddenly not eating as much or looking really skinny or, you know, not communicating with other people in a certain way, feeling, feeling really just like separated and, and different even if you're not experiencing something like this, which I hope no one listening has will ever have to experience, you know, if you see some changes in a friend, 
there are also ways that you can, you know, approach them and maybe not like say, are you being abused? But like, hey, is everything going okay with you? Are Has something been happening with you lately? You seem a little bit different or off. You know, I just want to let you know I'm here for you. That noticing some of these changes, having, I mean, Kashia and I talked, we had um, eating disorder professional on the podcast. And we talked a little bit about eating disorders and that often they they are a way, especially when they happen with really young women and men, they're a way that we seek to control something in our lives that we feel is out of control. Um, so they can often be a symptom of something else going on. So Katie, if if you were a friend of yours or or your own parent when you were going through this, what are are there any other things that you you would have like looked out for or noticed or that you know if you saw a young person going through you could be like hey that that person might be experiencing something like i did absolutely yeah it's like the things that you don't think are signs are signs because the conscious mind for me was trying to act like everything was fine but it would come out in sort of subconscious things that I wasn't really aware I was doing, for example, wearing more makeup and like wanting to look a little bit sad, like wearing like black eyeliner and kind of like embracing this sort of like dark look feeling because it's how I felt wearing dark colors and black a lot, having a really small window of tolerance, like easily getting really frustrated or really angry or really sad from something that was seemingly small because I was already processing so much inside. I had so little bandwidth for other things. Um, trying to be outside of the house as much as possible, like just not wanting to have to sit across from either of my parents and risk the conversation of like, how are you? Like really trying to just do my own thing. That was also a time that was really hard for me in middle school because it was my first experience with girls bullying other girls at school being mean to me and the gossiping and the rumor mills and the so-and-so likes you. I'm not going to tell him that you like him. Those kinds of things were so stressful. It was like laying in bed at night before school, worried about that. And then when school was over, worried about going into the hands of an abuser. And my life became this feedback loop of just feeling like I was on edge and being in some way kind of targeted in a cycle I had no control over. And it's such a huge impetus now for me to be kind always. We never know what someone's going through. And it's especially, especially in middle and high school, just trust that every other person around you or adulthood, absolutely adulthood, trust that every other person around you is going through something too. You'd have no idea how big or small and the kindness goes so far. Yeah. And I think also for me, another sign being that the eating disorder, I think in some ways was a cry for help. I wanted to look like, oh, is she okay? Because that's how I felt inside that I wasn't okay. I also think it's so significant that you came home from this program at 16 and then, you know, told your abuser, I don't want to work with you anymore. And how you describe giving up on that dream or giving up on dance, because It had morphed into something else for you. He had, in a way, like it feels to me like your passion was stolen from you because it was so flipped on its head and turned into this abusive cycle. And I think that um, for anyone listening, you know, looking at 
a friend or a loved one, or if it's yourself that's experiencing it, whether you realize it or not, something that you're so very passionate about that all of a sudden, you know, or even maybe like in increments, you just stop or lose interest or quit what you're doing. I mean, I think that's a good place to give pause to and think about, is there something bigger going on because this has been such a significant part of this person's life and passion and, you know, drive that all of a sudden they're dropping it? Like, is there, maybe this is a good place to open up bigger conversation. And I'm not saying that, it you know, we don't as human beings change our interests over time, especially as, as kids and as teenagers. Communication around these types of transitions, I think, is really significant. And that was a really strong piece that you just talked about. And I think I also made it sneaky for my parents to be able to see that, which like parents listening, you have a precocious, smart child, they might be fooling you in these ways. Because I thought my parents will think it's weird if I quit completely. Yeah. I just have to quit dancing with him and make up an excuse for what I want to do. And I've been offered a position in a professional ballet company my senior year in high school. I'd moved back from boarding school. I was, I went to normal high school and then about going into the hands of an abuser able to say I did it and grinded all these years to do it so to my parents it sort of made sense Mm -hmm. but it wasn't actually meaningful to me I was just trying to extract myself from a situation that I couldn't stay in you were trying to escape yeah and by that time like I hated ballet so much and I was still going every day and I think for for me if I go up to have a child that I see doing something they hate all the time. It's like that masochistic behavior is a little bit worrisome. Yeah. Um, And I look back at that now and think about how many things they did with that same energy of just like, I don't care about myself. I'm going to take two 90 minute yoga classes in a row. I don't care about myself. I'm going to eat all of this and then go to the gym for a few hours or you know, I just, I did a lot of things that were self-destructive and sort of sneaky ways. Look like yeah. Uber. Um, when you're negotiating with yourself, there's a pattern of like give and take and everything becomes, you know, it sounds like what you were doing is something that can be very common where it's, you know, rewarding and punishing behavior, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or trying to on your own fix something that you shouldn't have to fix on your own. You know, that that's almost like the pattern where it's like, okay, this thing happened to me, but I can fix it on my own without having to reach out with anyone else or affect anyone else's life because this was kind of my fault, you know, and that that kind of like seesaw behavior can continue for years and years. And and it makes me think of the point that you made that when something like this happens to someone in those years, you know, your brain is still forming. And literally that experience of feeling like this is something you're dealing with alone and you have to fix it on your own or not acknowledge it or whatever, that that actually created neuropathways in your brain that like, this is how I, I deal with hard things, you know? Absolutely. That's why it's so, so, so critically important that it's like, so Katie shared her story now on multiple outlets, but a really big one was the San Francisco Chronicle. She talked about the experience of going to court with all of this and being questioned which is another, I think we should go into that next is just yeah. the experience of being, having to come forward and then also having some pushback, telling your story. But someone questioned, you know, oh, Katie, you know, 
were you, did you, were you in love with him? Were you coming on to him? Were you precocious mm-hmm. with him? Mm-hmm. As if like, if, if she were willing and flirty during that time, it, as if that created consent and the response that she was thinking of from her, um, from her therapist was that there is no such thing as consent between a 12 year old, you know, and a 30 something. There is no such thing as that. I don't know. I just, I think that in the media representations of abuse, molestation, rape are usually, they portray the victim as in the moment, knowing that they don't want what's happening to them, happening to them. And that happens with many victims, but especially in a child situation, you are still a victim, even if you were like flirting with him and, and, you know, trying to encourage behavior like that because you were a child, you know, Mm -hmm. and I'd love to talk just a little bit more about your experience in core and some of these questions around like, well, what were your, what was your intent as a 12 year old? Since we've shared, I'm so happy that we've shared so much about my thought process and how all this landed for me as a child, because I'm sure you can understand that as a child who thinks this is all their fault, you have this shame that you work, carry for years. And then finally I start peeling it off and understanding this wasn't my fault. And then I went to court and quickly I'm being cross-examined kind of thing, pointing to pictures of me smiling, you know, next to him as a seventh or eighth grader. And they're like, you say this is some of the worst years of your life. Why were you smiling in these photos? Or isn't it true that you uh, made him a CD? It's like, you remember when burning CDs was a thing? I'm really aging myself here. But um, my mom said, you should make him one for Christmas. You know, you give your teachers presents at Christmas sometimes. Mm-hmm. My mom was the type of mom that would encourage me that way. And I was, yeah, okay, I'll burn my favorite CD. You know, why were you giving him gifts? And even putting those questions on the table and asking, were you in love with him? It gives the jury this idea that somehow those questions are relevant. But like you said, like I said, there is no such thing as consent being relevant with a 12-year-old. And myself and the DA, we were talking after that day in court, and she thought, there's no way that works on them, the jury. Like, there's no way they, they must be putting the pieces together that it doesn't matter. You were 12, and I'll remind them. And she did. And unfortunately, the misogyny that I encountered um, with some of the things that were said, we had one jury, jury person who came forward and told the DA and I and the San Francisco Chronicle what happened in that jury room. How did those people, six of the 12, eventually decide that he was not guilty or that they, they weren't willing to, you know, they weren't willing to say he was guilty? There was enough doubt for them. How did that happen? And things were said like an adult man would not be attracted to a child's body that it's not even developed. And that just shows a lack of education because Mm. pedophiles are attracted to children. And somebody saying, it's not possible to have sex from that angle standing up. That's just not possible. And you other people in the jury, I'm saying, yes, it is. And that person going, no, it's not. And to me, I don't even really know where to, where to categorize that in terms of education. And then you know, there was someone saying there's not enough victims. There were three people, three victims testifying in court. There's not enough victims. If he was really a pedophile, there'd be more victims. As if, unless it's sort of Larry Nasser type of uh, numbers of victims, it's not, it didn't really happen to the three women in front of you. It just shocked me that we, that there were still people you know, saying that I had credibility issues 
despite like a lot of work that I've done in my life to (laughs) be an upstanding person, (laughs) to do things the right way, to like lead with integrity and to have somebody then say, well, you know, we don't believe her. And the attorney, the defense attorney trying to say things like, well, she's an actress. She's just trying to be part of the Me Too movement. And, you know, for anyone to imply that anyone who has been sexually abused wants to be part of that category uh, is abhorrent to me. And I just didn't know these things existed. Mm-hmm. I, I live in LA at the time I was like, had lived in LA for maybe 12 years and it seems like a pretty progressive place. The conversations I'm seeing with my friends and on social media seem to be around much more progressive ideologies. And this sort of, it was very easy to make these people on the jury think that I was looking for attention. It made me very sad that we have a society that often jumps to not believe survivors Mm -hmm. and to defend abusers. Well, and I think I want to kind of bring it back to something you pointed out at the beginning of the interview that one of the common traits of perpetrators of abuse, sexual abuse, and pedophilia are often those people who are so gregarious and, you know, they're good-looking, they're upstanding citizens in society, they have, you know, friend groups, they're charming. I mean, those are qualities of clinical sociopaths and clinical abusers. And that's just, that's a fact. I mean, when you look at like the breakdown of the qualities that most of these people share, that's a fact. And I think that that's something that, you know, defense attorneys, when they're hired to defend those types of people, they try to really harp on because it's easier to convince somebody like, oh, how could you look at this person who has a job and and coaches young girls and like they go on to win medals. Like, how could you possibly think that that's a person that could be an abuser? And yet they are, and yet they do. And um, I can't imagine how, even after having done all of the work with your therapist, we touched on a little bit how difficult this process was. Like, in the beginning, you were not keen on coming forward openly that it was you that this was happening to. But as you know, clearly as this progressed, you had to be very much involved and very much open about this. But that had to have been incredibly, you know, traumatizing, like salt in the wound, even after all this time to go sit in a room where some people were in there looking at you saying, did you do this? Or were you smiling at him? Or, you know, how could we think that you were an unhappy child when you have photographs like this? I think it's important to be really clear to anyone in our audience listening that you can be going through something really, really difficult and have a a pretty strong mask on. And I think that that's something that a lot of people can relate to in different contexts. And we have to remember that, especially in the context of something as shameful and guilt-ridden as sexual abuse and sexual abuse in children, you know, these kids have learned how to mask what's going on quite well. And so I think, like you said, Katie, it's both abhorrent that we still live in a, in a society that doesn't always recognize that, but it's also really important that we're talking about this now. 
Absolutely. It is really important that we're talking about this now because currently less than 1% of rapes are convicted. Less than 1%. And it's estimated that one in six boys and one in four girls will be sexually abused before they're 18. Every nine minutes, a child is sexually abused. And it's likely all these statistics are lower than what actually is the case. So if we want to live in a world where there's less abuse, we need to create accountability systems for abusers to be held accountable that actually work. And if you right now were to ask me, should I pursue a criminal case right now? I would say no. It was incredibly re-traumatizing. I'm glad in my case that my abuser is not working with children anymore and that I was able to make sure that that could happen. But the emotional, mental, physical, financial toll it took on me of just most people I think cannot and should not go through that I think healing with a therapist is the most important thing that you can do for your own happiness for your own getting your life back and I think we need to work to improve reporting structures so that victims can report with or without an investigation victims can report anonymously and that victims rights are upheld so that we can't victim blame or victim shame survivors on the stand when they come forward. That type of behavior, that type of action is incredibly damaging to the psyche of someone who's already been through a lot at that point. And I was horrified by my experience with the criminal justice system. A point that you made in your writing was that for most victims, the scariest thing about coming forward is the idea that people won't believe you. You know, so going through already getting over that hurdle where it's like, all right, even if they don't, I'm, I have to come forward. But then having these lines of questioning, like you've already put on this, like, you know, I'm putting on my armor, I'm going into battle. But then that's literally like someone being like, oh, but you got a hole in your, I'm, I'm going to poke this hole here that's not covered, you know, and, and yeah. having to have you regrow all of those shells that you had to kind of really uncover even by going through in, in therapy. I can only imagine the the strength that really it took to go through that over and over again when you already had to go through it as such a young woman. We'd love to also talk about, because clearly it's taken so much inner and outer work, you know, to come forward with this, to be honest about everything, open, transparent, doing interviews like this one. Clearly with this advocacy, there are changes that you'd hope to see in the justice system, in the public perception and response to victims. Can you tell us a little bit about like what changes you'd like to see for that experience for victims? So many. But one thing that's very actionable right now is improving the victims' rights and advancing victims' rights and upholding victims' rights. There's an organization called NCVLI, National Crime Victim Law Institute, and they do that. They're there to make sure that victims' rights are not stepped on in the legal process because in the carrying out of justice, sometimes thinking about how this will affect the person is not there. And it feels to me like the mental health world and the criminal justice world aren't having conversations and that for all of the softness and awareness there is around sexual assault and how it needs to be dealt with that it's like the gloves are off in the courtroom. For example, I felt like questions about whether I loved my abuser or not shouldn't have even been allowed. 
but the defense was trying to make a specific case, I guess. And for some reason, that type of thing is okay. And to me, that just felt archaic. It made me really not feel like we're living in the time that we are with the understanding that we are around consent. And NCVLI is not, they're they're the only ones doing it. There's lots of groups out there advocating for defendants' rights. There's lots of money being put into that. And it's important that we protect everyone on every side of the legal process. Currently going through the legal system, the criminal justice system as a survivor, the burden of proof falls very heavily on the victim. The way that we look at these cases and the way that these cases are prosecuted are often completely negligent of how this will affect the person going through it. And that needs to get better. NCVLI is hosting a fundraiser on September 28th, and I'm going to be their keynote speaker, sharing my story in the hopes that I can shed light on why we desperately need organizations like this. I know that lots of people think about where to donate money. It seems like there's so many places that could really use help in the world right now. So many people, so many different populations, but I can say as a survivor who went through this process, this organization is doing incredible work to make this system better. And if this system can get better, we can actually hold abusers accountable. But right now, abusers don't get caught and they continue abusing more and more and more people. And we have this rampant problem. So that's something that can be done now and something that can be done supporting them. And something else that can be done now is just every time anyone, anyone listening, anytime you hear a story about someone coming forward, just take a moment to pause and notice your own reactions and notice what this brings up for you and check yourself and listen to the people around you and and challenge people. When when things are said like, well, so-and-so is just doing this because they want attention or those types of things, there's survivors listening always. They're, they're paying attention how the people around them process these incidents and they're putting it into a mental bank of who's going to be against me and who's going to believe me if I come forward. So sometimes people don't know they're sitting at a table with a survivor while they're talking about the veracity of a claim of some celebrity and what they think. And I will just say that it, it never totally makes sense, the story, why someone doesn't get themselves out of the situation why someone you know may have even been married to their abuser these situations often do defy logic because the person is stuck in a traumatized state and you don't have to understand to believe and we don't need to believe every single person all the time but we need to make sure we aren't jumping to quickly discredit people that come forward i think everything that you just mentioned is so so relevant and important especially the point about like, you just, you don't know, you know, even if you're just commenting on something, some celebrity, the way they talked about this or whatever that, and making it a joke that it's like someone listening, like you don't know what people have gone through, whether, or they're going through right now, or they went through as a child and you may be shutting down something that really needs to happen for them to be able to heal. You know, you mentioned that going through this system as it is right now, you know, although they're, there are organizations like NCBLI trying to make change here. You did mention that like you wouldn't recommend it for someone in the way that the system is set up right now. For someone who is realizing they have gone through sexual abuse, for a young person who's in the middle of it, for someone who feels like 
maybe a relationship is heading in that direction and they don't know what to do. You mentioned that therapy is one of the most important and powerful reflecting tools to help pull yourself out of that. I think that therapy is becoming a little bit more accepted in our in our cultural zeitgeist right now, which is great. But I think some people can still feel like it is a luxury or super, super expensive. You know, even if you're you're a child, you know, and you're in elementary school and you happen to listen to this or someone turns you on to it, you can go to a teacher and say like, hey, you don't even have to tell your teacher or your mom or whoever. Just be like, I think I should talk to a therapist about something that's going on with me. Can you help me find that person? Absolutely. Ask anyone. Ask anyone, hey, can you help me get in touch with a therapist? Because there are ways to make that happen and they don't necessarily have to be expensive, prohibitive, or excluded to a certain type of person. Absolutely. Well said. I would love to, you know, talk about Katie Wee as a whole person. As you mentioned before, this is something that happened to you, but it does not define you. You also mentioned that things happen in your life and it's not the person that you will be forever or the situation you'll be experiencing forever. So can you tell us a little bit about life now, what you're working on now, what excites you, and what this looks like for you on the other side, having been through extensive therapy, having been through the criminal justice system, and having processed this in all the ways that you have been able to and and transitioned it, you know, from victimhood to advocacy, you know, we'd love to hear that. Absolutely. I feel like a huge weight has been lifted off my shoulders now. Like living with this as a secret for so many years was really heavy. And coming forward has been really beautiful because I've been able to feel all of the love and support around me that was always available to me, but I had no idea how big it was. And I'm so grateful for how so many people in my life have reached out and supported me. And I will also say that going to the low lows in life enables you to feel the high highs. And when I was numb, which I did for a lot of my teenage years, just to kind of like get through everything subconsciously, I couldn't really feel anything. And I feel so joyful at this stage in my life and grateful for have incredible family. I have wonderful friends. I really love that I still get to be someone who pursues my childhood dreams. Like I was a little girl who wanted to perform, wanted to sing, dance, act, all the things, like put on a show after dinner, watch me, you know? And I always dreamed of being an actress too. And I would watch friends on TV and just be like, oh my God, dream. And then to get to do that, to really get to do that, I pinch myself every day that I get to do the thing that when I was a little girl, I wanted to do in addition to dance and dance saw its way out of my life, but other beautiful things have seen their way in and been exploring writing some of my own opinion pieces just to talk more about these issues. Because I do think that it's rare you see survivors that get justice less than 1%. And it's rare you see a survivor who gets justice that like lives to tell the tale and can talk about these things because she's done enough work and I feel like, okay, that's me. That's me right now. I can talk about this and I want to be an example for other survivors, victims of trauma, that you can move forward and have a good life. I feel at this point, like many possibilities are out there. 
I'm happy. I'm grateful. I'm exploring different things that I might do in the future. And I feel like I'm starting kind of like a second life, second part of my life. Katie, I, I can hear the joy in your voice as you talk about this. And I think it's so important that that's shared because when you're talking about like being an actress now, it's like, look at you, you've reclaimed that dream, you know, that it felt like someone was taking away from you in a certain area of your life. It's come, it's blossomed out in other ways because you were able to use these inherent strengths that you've always had of performance, of sharing, of putting things together. Like you're, you're also using all those strengths to share your story right now. Like actors, dancers, you know, this creative type, you are a storyteller and being able to go back through something that happened with you, understand it, and now you're really, you're putting it back together and framing it from a, an adult perspective. I just think this whole story and arc is so beautiful and important. We usually like close out our interviews with like a fast five, but I think that through this whole system, you have been questioned enough. I would like to ask our, we always like to end with the same question. What is one thing about one attribute, quality, characteristic, about you as a young woman that maybe you didn't appreciate back then, but looking back at yourself, you so much more appreciate now. My depth of processing. I think I used to feel like a weird teenager that was feeling things really deeply. Um, I once told my friends that country music made me feel too vulnerable and they were like, what? <laughs> but it was like too beautiful and sweet. And I was just like, it's too much. But <laughs> You know, like that would hit me sometimes as a teenager that I'd feel things really deeply. That's still how I am. And that feeling things deeply and seeing things deeply and not just seeing the, the surface of something, but what's under and what's under that, that's what's made life really beautiful for me now too. Because I can see that although some tough things have happened to me, I have a really blessed, beautiful life. And I'm so lucky to be me. And I think that I, if I couldn't see that, circumstances in my life would have overwhelmed me and made me feel not happy and not grateful and not aware of everything that's happening around me. And I, at this point, feel grateful that I can see all of that and that even though this has been a hard path, I am who I am at this point because of it. And now it's just, what do I do with that? And the answer for me is help people. Thank you, Katie. You are a ray of life and, and such a force. I can't acknowledge enough how grateful we are to have you as a voice on our podcast and just to be, you know, in your presence as you're, you're sharing important things with such bravery and such poise. So thank you, Katie, for joining us today. We will be leaving lots of resources in our show notes, links to different organizations that are doing good work in this category and also links to some of Katie's written stories if you want to read a little bit more deeply about her experience in her own words. So thank you again, Katie. Keep on doing what you're doing. It's so important. Thank you so much. Thank you both. This is great. And that's our show. If you liked what you heard today, please like, subscribe to, follow, and share Meet Bridget with your circle. The best way to help our work here is to rate and review our podcast. We're listening and constantly working to build something helpful for you. Catch you next time. Did you have an awesome time? Did you drink awesome shooters and listen to awesome music and then just sit around and soak up each other's awesomeness?